Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Okay. Uh, today we're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and verse 12, and go in a little, a little bit into chapter 3 as we continue in 2 Corinthians. And we remember that 2 Corinthians was written in response to or in response to the Corinthians' response to Paul's sorrowful letter. He had written 1 Corinthians addressing some of their issues, and evidently he made what he calls a sorrowful visit, and then wrote a most, what he calls a sorrowful letter that we don't know, don't, don't have. And, and we'll find out that their response to the sorrowful letter was evidently a good one, which rejoiced Paul's heart and, and produced this letter in response. Um, one thing to keep in mind as we go through 2 Corinthians, as we've said, is that it's not a tightly argued book in the sense of doctrine or theology, but it's a very emotional book in the sense that Paul is appealing to their emotions and their friendship and fellowship and wants to restore the relationship with them. He does want to address things like the collection and offering that he's going to take, and he spends a lot of time defending his ministry as well. <clears throat> a lot of it has to do with um, defending his authenticity as an apostle because of uh, evidently those accusers who were there and um, causing problems. So, uh, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 12, I read, um, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. Now, Paul came to Troas expecting to meet Titus there. Troas is in that uh, peninsula of, uh, of Macedonia uh, where Corinth is at the bottom. And he says he had left Ephesus for Troas because he expected to meet. Uh, Titus there, but also he may have been due to the fact that there was opposition in Ephesus as well. We can read about that in Acts 19. It could have been that riot caused by Demetrius. We're not, not certain why he left. But um, he left Troas for Macedonia um, because of his concern for the Corinthians, he heading further south towards the Corinthians, um, and his concern for Titus because he hadn't heard from Titus and he didn't meet up with him in Troas. And he had, sevent, he had sent Titus with the severe letter. Um, but he, he says here that he didn't have peace of mind. Even though God had opened a door of opportunity for him there, I take it to share the gospel, in Troas, uh, he didn't stay there. He did not find Titus. And, and, um, but he had no rest of... He, the King, New King James says, I had no rest in my spirit. I take this as what we would probably say today, no, no peace of mind about it. Um, not just because of Titus wasn't there, but he had concern for the Corinthians. And so he left to go uh, into Macedonia further south in the peninsula there. Uh, I think it's interesting just in these couple verses here that uh, Paul was sensitive to God and to see that God had opened 
an opportunity for him, an open door. And, and yet, Paul didn't go through it at that time. That's the interesting thing to me. Uh, God opens doors. And by the way, Paul did go back to Troas later. So he did go take that opportunity, Acts chapter 20 tells us. He did go back to Troas. But right now, he didn't go through the door that God opened for him. So I think it points out to me that God uh, opens doors and we can see them, but we also have to be flexible enough to make wise judgments uh, because circumstances can change. I certainly have seen that in my own ministry. God opened a door for us to go to Zimbabwe uh, this June, this past June, uh, but circumstances change. And of course, we have to then resort to our judgment um, and make the decision not to go because of the uh, um, health situation there. So here's, here's another point I think we might make is sometimes it's good to listen to your heart. I know sometimes we get uncomfortable with a subjective test like that. Um, if God opens a door, somehow Paul must have known that. I don't know how he knew that for sure. Maybe it was circumstances. Maybe God spoke to him. We don't know. But um, we know he had a vision like with the Macedonian man calling him over there. But it seems like this is a different opportunity, to an open door to Troas. But he didn't feel comfortable with it. And he listened to his heart, we might say. And instead he headed south towards Corinth. So I think you can probably relate to the fact that sometimes you feel... Uh, you're being led in a certain direction, but then maybe you don't feel comfortable with it right now. You want to postpone it or uh, not, right now is not the right time to act. I just think it's important that we, that God, we look for open doors, but we also listen for what he's trying to say to us in the midst of all of that. And he might make an impression on our heart about something. Well, now in verses uh, 14, through 16, he expresses his great triumph in Christ in the midst of all of this. Now, I might mention that this, this past section that we just talked about is part of Paul's self-defense against his critics who were accusing him of being fickle and because he had promised to visit the Corinthians and he didn't come. And he was explaining earlier some of the reasons he hadn't come. And, um, and he didn't want to make a second sorrow, another sorrowful visit and so forth. Um, so he's still, he's still explaining the fact uh, of why he had a change of plans. And that's kind of what we just saw. But now he's explaining his attitude in all of this, which is a victorious attitude. He's triumphing in Christ in verses 14 through 16a. Um, I'll read. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Well, I didn't mean to read the last question, but uh, I think the first part of that, verses 14 through 16a, show that his triumph in Jesus Christ. Uh, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Uh, that's a wonderful perspective that Paul has. When he says us, he's talking about believers. And we can include ourselves in that, uh, that we are always led in triumph 
in Jesus Christ. That is our future. That is our assurance. Now, this actually section begins or transitions into a, a section where he's talking about New Covenant ministry. And, and that goes on into chapter 3 and, and through chapter 3. So we're going to save a lot of comments about the New Covenant uh, until then. But here he's returning to discussing his meeting up with Titus. Uh, and he's rejoicing because he finally did meet Titus, we'll find out. In chapter 7, um, he says that God comforted us by the coming of Titus. So God comforted him to the extent that he was able to just rejoice and thank God for that. So, it, verse 14, beginning with now, or in some translations, but, shows the contrast. And I think the contrast is between his um, negative emotions of anxiety, we might call it, or restlessness that he's experiencing about Titus, to sudden triumph because he hears from Titus and meets up with him finally. So there's this great contrast in his emotions. His diversion uh, didn't stop him from uh, victoriously building the church, even though he had to leave Troas. He thanked God that there was progress being made in Corinth from the news that Titus brought him. So there's a great emphasis in this epistle of Jesus Christ uh, conquering our enemies for us and leading us triumphantly to build his church. And we'll see other allusions to that as we go through it. But here, note that he also uses the, um, an illustration or an analogy of what, what might be called a uh, uh, triumphal parade. Um, it was customary, as in some cultures, but in the Roman culture, to after they conquered an enemy, to return home, and then the city would, would hold a parade for them, uh, with the generals, of course, marching in the front, soldiers behind, and at the very end, the prisoners. And during the parade, of course, there would be probably festivities, but there was also the burning of incense, so there was a fragrance that accompanied the parade. And it was smelled by all. It was smelled not only by the victorious uh, soldiers in the parade, but it was also smelled by the prisoners who were going to be probably executed at the end of the parade. It was smelled by all. And it was a fragrance that went up to God, he indicates, but it meant different things to different people who smelled it. Uh, so it went up to the vertical perspective, but it also went on the horizontal um, plane. And the, those who smelled it, he said it was a fragrance um, um, to the one, the aroma of death leading to death, and the other, the aroma of life leading to life. Um, different ways of interpreting that. Uh, probably, I would interpret it as Tom Constable does, that um, the death to death is speaking of the, of the death of Christ that leads, uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the, uh, that Christ's death, <clears throat> and then the second death of those who would reject Christ, and the second death would be the lake of fire. So from death to, de to death, Christ's death to the condemnation of those who would reject him and the significance of his death, and life to life would speak of the resurrection then of Jesus Christ and the possibility of eternal life in Christ. Um, that's an interpretation that makes sense. Uh, I think the point is, is that when people smelled this fragrance and this aroma in the parade, is that 
there was no middle ground. To them, it either was the stench of the fumes of sulfur of hell, or it was a, it was the smell of victory, a sweet smell. And I think uh, what we observe is that the gospel doesn't leave anyone neutral. Um, to it, 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 the Bible says that we're condemned already if we don't believe. So uh, to reject the gospel is death, eternal, and to accept the gospel is life, eternal. It doesn't leave anyone neutral. There's no middle ground. Um, only those two options. So Paul then uh, is talking about, again, like in the book of Philippians chapter 1, uh, he's going from not being a victim but to victory because Jesus Christ continues to build his church no matter what the circumstances. Then in uh, the second part of 16, he asks the question that we read, and who is sufficient for these things? In other words, who can be a fragrance like this to God and to other people? And then he answers this question in verse 17. For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity. But as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. He says that we're not like the many. So evidently there was a lot of detractors still in Corinth who he says we're peddling the word of God. That word peddling um, actually means uh, like to hawk something. It's really a pejorative use of the word. Um, if you've ever been to a third world country, you uh, many times in most places are constantly harassed by people coming up to your car or coming up to you, as you if you're on the street, uh, begging you to buy their things. Uh, here, just hold this, just touch this. And once you hold it, they won't take it back, you know, or they'll chase you. <laughs> they'll, they'll stay with you for a half hour just following you around, uh, no matter what you say to them to get rid of them. Uh, it's, a, it's a really harassing attitude, uh, stance. But um, Paul here is talking about some peddle the word of God in that way. Uh, they're not doing it in a sincere way, as from God, like he is, is it? Is the implication he's doing it with a clear conscience as a ministry of God but not so them they're doing it perhaps like the uh, enemies in Paul had in uh, the Philippian uh, when he was a jail, in jail in Rome and the Philippians were preaching out of contention and strife um, but he's he sees them and and who who is sufficient for these things well who, is, who can spread the fragrance of God? Not those who are mishandling the word of God, but those who are sincere before God in the sight of God in Christ, he says. So to, to those who ministry is not just a business, uh, but a real way to serve other people, those are the ones who will be the sweet-smelling fragrance to God and to others. We might pause to ask an interesting question of ourselves. How do you smell? How do you smell? How do you smell before God in your ministry, in your motives for ministry and serving Him? And how do you smell to others who are observing and watching? Um, we today, as purveyors of the gospel, represent uh, the sweet aroma of eternal life to believers, but also we represent the fumes of hell to unbelievers and those who reject the gospel. And um, we should be preaching the gospel in such a way that it leaves no one neutral.
Um, you can look at John 3.18, John 3.36. Um, some will reject it and be condemned. Um, but to believe it means that we have the victory. And the gospel will be a sweet smell and a sweet sound to them. Um, there's something about Christians, I think, where I don't want to say they do emit a smell or a fragrance, but there's an aura of something about them. Even watching uh, politicians on the news, uh, there's sometimes I say to myself, you know, there's something about that person. It seems like he's a Christian or she's a Christian. And it comes out that they actually are. Um, there's just something that we sense, we smell about them, if you will. Um, they're giving off a sweet aroma from their, their person, their personality, their character, their words, and everything that makes us who we are. So how do you smell to the people around you? Might be a question you can ask. If you're constantly complaining, if you're constantly um, uh, uh, being the victim, if you're impatient with a store clerk or a waiter, waitress, um, how would you smell? To them. I think something else we see, the deeper the sincerity, the sweeter the smell. <clears throat> so the more sincere we are in our motives for ministry, uh, the better fragrant we are to God, and I think the more influence we have on other people as well. So the encouragement here, like Paul, is to be sincere before God and before others, to be genuine. Um, we might say it's easy to smell a phony. You can also listen to preachers on television or somewhere else, or in person, or on the radio, and it's something that just says, you know, this doesn't smell right. This just doesn't smell right. Um, and I, I quite often say that, and I don't waste time watching or listening to those kinds of people. So the deeper the sincerity and the more genuine the ministry, the more impact we have uh, on others and the more pleasing we are to God. And then uh, something else I think we notice that no matter how bad the circumstances, we're on the winner's side. We triumph in Christ. Uh, we if, if he's leading us, and Paul still may have the imagery of this parade in mind, uh, if Jesus is out front leading his uh, army of believers, uh, we are triumphant in him. Um, he always leads us in triumph in Christ. I know sometimes we feel like the world's spinning out of control and there are forces threatening <clears throat> our country and uh, threatening the church as well. And we say, well, it may be the end of our country as we know it, or it may be the end of our churches and religion, practice of religion in America as we know it from an American perspective. Um, but we need to remember that no matter what happens, that Christ always leads us in triumph. Nothing can take away from us our future with him. What a comforting thought it is uh, that the government... Uh, the, the kingdom of God doesn't depend on who is our president or who is in our Congress. It, it's, it depends on Jesus Christ and his promised victorious return for us and establishment of his kingdom. So, uh, just continue to look forward optimistically uh, to uh, our final victory in Jesus Christ and we'll be encouraged today and we'll live in the same kind of victory and triumph today. Uh, we can thank God that he always leads us in triumph in Christ. Now, in chapter 3 uh, into chapter 6, uh, Paul kind of goes on a digression. A digression about the nature of the new covenant ministry. 
And the New Covenant ministry defined so much, and the reason he does this, I think, is because it defines so much of what he did and why he did it. And it answers so many of the objections and accusations that might have been thrown at him. So the digression goes on for several chapters, but we're just going to look at the first few verses of this because a lot of it is contrasting the New Covenant and the Old Covenant. And we don't want to get too deeply into that today, but we do want to at least, I think, go through verse, uh, maybe verse 6. Um, he explains his view of the Christian ministry so that they will appreciate his calling and his um, uh, authenticity and their position as those who have believed. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. He says, Do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written on our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tables, tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Now, to his detractors, Paul is saying, uh, do we need letters of commendation to you? Because his detractors were saying that Paul was a fraud. I mean, he's actually saying this to the church about his detractors uh, who were saying that he was a fraud. Do we need to be commended to you? When you think of it, it's an absurd thing that Paul would have to have a letter of commendation to the Corinthian church. He was the one that established the church and founded it. He preached to them the, the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so uh, he came to them when there was no one uh, church to receive a condemnation. So why does he need one now if he's the one that started the church? And um, what, he, what he's saying is that you, as believers in the church, serve as his commendation. Your changed lives, your uh, faith in Christ is something that's written on your hearts. Um, not like the law on tablets of stone, but by the spirit of the living God on tablets of flesh, that is the heart, uh, flesh um, speaking um, figuratively. Uh, So he's saying, if you want to know my authenticity, just look at your own heart. Has it changed? Has your attitude about Christ changed? You're new people now. Uh, Why do I need something written um, in a letter to commend myself to you, given our history together? Um, I think it's interesting here that Paul calls them uh, we, might, we might say living epistles um, and, and letters of commendation written on their hearts. Uh, you know, most people in the world will not probably read 2 Corinthians or maybe any other book of the Bible, um, but everyone will read Christians um, because Christians are surrounded all the time by unbelievers. People are reading you and me and they're seeing what's written on our hearts. So, what is the gospel according to you or according to me? And what kind of impression are we making um, on them for the sake of the gospel? A changed life is a powerful testimony to the truth. And Paul is asking them, I think, to look at the change in their hearts, the change in their lives, uh, as a testimony to his authenticity. He goes from there to talk about his confidence that he gets from this New Covenant ministry. And um, this is where he answers his question about who is sufficient for these things. And I'm going to read verses 4 through 6. 
And we have such trust through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So Paul is still answering his question, who is sufficient for these things? And his answer is that it's only through Christ by God's grace. He doesn't find the ability or the power or the sufficiency within himself uh, in this ministry. And um, the word ministry, of course, um, means a service. Um, and so to serve other people requires uh, God's grace and sufficiency. We, we don't have the resources within ourselves to effectively serve other people. We're just not sufficient. And I probably have said this before, but someone has said that ministry is when God asks you to do what you cannot do with resources you do not have. And Paul is, is implying here that he doesn't have the resources and the ability to serve them as he should. And it's only by God's grace and, and sufficiency he finds in Jesus Christ that he's able to minister them effectively. So God gives him that power. And then he mentions some contrasts between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Um, because he realizes he's now under the new covenant, has a new covenant ministry. And in the next time we look at 2 Corinthians, we'll talk more about the contrast between the old and the new covenant. He lists seven of them. There's three of them listed here. Um, he contrasts the old covenant with the new covenant, the letter with the spirit, and death with life. And um, we see all of that in verse 6. So, Paul's enemies evidently were based in the Old Covenant under the law. They were legalists, and they had a, or they had a law-based Christianity at, at the best. Um, they might have been Christians, but uh, were still preaching the law to these people. Uh, but the law is external in its demands, and it didn't have the power to fulfill the demands that it required of people. The New Covenant ministry is completely different. It's internal, and it's enabled by the Holy Spirit. And that's why he says that the Old Covenant killed, but the New Covenant gives life. The law in the Old Covenant condemned people because they just were not able to keep it and, f and keep it all perfectly. But the New Covenant in Jesus Christ gives us life. And um, the, the law focused on written regulations, uh, not the leading of the Spirit. But in the New Covenant, we have uh, not just the letter of the law, but the Spirit. And the Spirit actually enables us uh, to keep to please God and do His will. And he says the letter kills and the Spirit gives life. It was under the law that we find out that we're sinners and we find out that we're separated from God. And um, the purpose of the law was never meant to save us. It didn't have the power to do that. It showed us we were condemned, but it couldn't do anything about it. But what it could do, Galatians chapter 3 says, the law was given to lead us to Christ um, after a period of keeping us under its tutelage we're led to Jesus Christ, who then can make us complete and uh, make our salvation final. So, uh, I think Paul is, is also saying here in his own defense that he was not self-appointed. The sufficiency and the calling for his ministry was not from himself, but from God. Um, and he was a, made a minister by God himself. And that's where he also finds his sufficiency. So, 
um, I think we the points that we might um, apply here is that we need to be careful not to go back under the law. If Paul uh, says it wasn't good enough and that we're under a new covenant, then we shouldn't be living under the law. The law has a deadening effect. It, it kills people uh, because we can't li ever live up to it perfectly. And so if we try to preach even the Ten Commandments and require that from people for acceptance with God, all we, all we do is condemn them to guilt. And then, how do we relate to the law? That's the question we, we should ask and answer. Um, and we'll be party, part of our study of the rest of chapter 3 later when we address this again. Um, if you want to see a comparison between being under the law and under grace, uh, you might go to my website, gracelife.org, and look at Grace Notes number 84. It's called The Christian and the Law, Grace Notes number 84, on the website, gracelife.org. You can read that in preparation for our next time when we go through 2 Corinthians. Uh, and then there we'll contrast more what it means to be under the New Covenant as opposed to what it means to be under the Old Covenant. So, I'm going to stop right there and uh, just uh, summarize that Paul is continuing to defend himself and uh, explain why he did not go and visit them as he had promised, but uh, was diverted by his concern for the church and and Titus who was missing. And when he finally met up with Titus, he heard a good report from him. It caused him to uh, be thankful to God and realize that God always wins, that he always triumphs in him. And, um, and then he talks about the fact that we are living epistles. They were, and they would be his letter of commendation or his approval is authenticating a letter of authentication and how important it is to realize that God has also written on our hearts and people are reading us and getting their idea of the gospel of salvation from us. Thank you for listening. For more resources or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.